Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelicone. Tonight, you are listening to episode 131, and we are covering the top five films of 1981. Um, Frank, you had a much shorter short list uh, this time around uh then uh 19 what was it, 71 and then 91 you had a you have a really long short list but so I, 2001 yeah. yeah so 81 i saw you had here das boot as a possibility yep. i always thought you disliked that movie i don't know why i just don't really have any interest in watching it again i guess but i mean it's like it's a technically, you know, really well made and well acted movie. I just, I don't like submarine movies. So, sure. I don't care about submarines. And then, uh, Kude Torshan. Um, yeah. What's that movie? I don't know anything about it. I didn't look it up. Uh, it's a French crime movie, I guess. Um, I've only seen it once, uh, but I remember enjoying it. Um, it's based on a, a Thompson novel, hmm. Jim Thompson. Um, I remember liking it, but I couldn't remember it well enough to say that I liked it better than the five movies on the list. It's probably been, Jesus, I don't know, 13 years since I've seen it. So it's something where I think that you would probably enjoy it, as I recall it. Um, it's got a pretty, it's it, it's really well done. Um, but again, like I can't really like remember enough to say that I like it more than any of these five. So, plus, it might make a '80s crime list if we ever do it. Um, it's based on a Population Twelve Eighty. Are you familiar with that? Oh novel? yeah, I know that book. I wrote it. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's that, but um, they take it from like Southwest uh, United States to um south africa in like the 30s yeah um it's definitely something that i think you would enjoy watching um and i really remember liking it visually but again like i i just i i feel like there was something about it that i i thought held it back from being like great and i can't remember what that is so gotcha. cool do you know if that's on criterion at all it used to be i mean i owned it on dvd i think um it was it was streaming somewhere weird like in the past five or six years because i remember thinking that i should watch it again and then i just didn't yeah i just don't see it anywhere um i see a link to criterion but i don't want to click it right now um so <clears throat> you also had the french lieutenant's woman which i would have thought for some reason would have made this list i seem to remember you really liking that movie a lot i like the story a lot um i'm a fan of the novel and again it's something where like i have really vague memories of it and i i know that i did enjoy it but i couldn't remember it well enough to say like this is going on there but it's a pretty critically acclaimed movie and it's um a good adaptation of that of that book so then you had lola as a possibility yeah that's um about lola montes i don't know if you're familiar with her i'm not um exotic dancer from like the 40s i guess um exotic in like the burlesque or whatever sense 
Sure. Um, there's been a lot of movies made about her. Um, Max Ufels, uh has a Lola Montes um, movie. Hmm. And then I don't know what Possession is either. I thought I had you watch Possession once. It's um, it's actually been re-released this year in cinemas, I think. And there's a um, like a remastered version that's out right now. Um, it's a psychological slash supernatural horror thriller. Um, Isabella Johnny, isn't it? Um, it's about a woman who's a woman and a man and a woman who are having like troubles in their marriage and the woman is manifesting them in a ways that may be supernatural or maybe just be showing like some burgeoning like psychological trauma inside of her. Um, it's a really fantastic movie, uh, really um, tense and I think it's free a few places. It's, it's, it's worth watching. You've, you've seen the cover of the movie before. It's like a woman with her back to you. I have seen and it. And it kind of like is serpentine, you know, and like exposing like her back. It's, it's, um, it's, it's worth watching. It's I, I remember seeing it in the movie stores when I was young. Yeah. That cover. It doesn't look like yeah. it's anywhere, like according to Google right now. Cause I would have no, added it, but because they pulled everything when they re-released it gotcha so i think it's rentable on prime Mm. for like six bucks or something like that but it's one of those movies where when you have the chance to watch it you should you should take the time to see it because it's a it's a good movie okay and then the last movie on your short list was one we had discussed before which was thief yep that's the only reason why i didn't make the list was just because i felt like we did it justice um when we discussed it on the was that 80s crime or heist movies or something? Heist. I can't remember. It was, what it was on made. the heist movies list back, which I think is episode 16, I believe. 15 or 16. It was one of our early ones. I remember we were in the dining room during that episode. But, yeah. yeah, that's no, um, an excellent movie, though. I had never seen it before that point and was really kind of blown away by that. Yeah, it's really good. And that's free up on uh, HBO Max right now because I think it is on like TCM maybe or something like that. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. I knew it was free somewhere recently that I've seen. I couldn't remember where, but yeah, sounds right. And I think there's two versions of it. I think there's like uh, a different like director's cut or something along those lines, maybe. Because I see two different covers when I've looked the crime movies up on HBO Max. It's one like of my favorite procedural crime thrillers i think ever if, if that's such a thing yeah um like where you really get into the minutiae of like the execution of the crimes as opposed to just the visceral nature of like violent crime sure yeah, yeah agreed all right so <clears throat> how do you feel about the five movies that we're going to talk about tonight um i mean i think all five movies are not only really good movies but like definitely some of the best um some there's a couple of movies on this list that are my favorites from childhood um a couple of movies that i discovered like later in life but i think all five are are just really actually i guess three movies that are favorite that you know and honestly like all five of these movies i saw before i was technically an adult so i guess all five are childhood favorites in some way 
Um, and I think there's some interesting parallels between several of them. Um, mm. Yeah. And yeah. movies we've talked about like previously on other lists too. So I think it's an interesting list to talk about. Yeah. All right. So again, we're not ranking these. We've decided anymore. The end of the year lists. We're just going to pick a certain order that we want to talk about them in. So the first movie you wanted to talk about is one we have discussed previously on episode 106, which was an Indiana Jones retrospective that we did with friend of the podcast, Jason Heaster. Uh, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's directed by Steven Spielberg. It stars Harrison Ford, Karen Allen, Paul Freeman, Wolf Collar, John Reese davies and Denholm Elliott. It has a 95% from critics and a 96% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know if you really need to describe this movie to anybody, sure. but uh, what have you... We, we talked extensively about it during the retrospective, but what are your thoughts on it, maybe in context of the year or any new thoughts you've had on it? I think Raiders is one of the more important movies of the 1980s. I feel that on one hand, you introduce this iconic character and you elevate Harrison Ford from, I would say, a star to a megastar at that point. The combination of Han Solo and Indiana Jones propels Harrison Ford well into the 90s and keeps him relevant, I think, the entire time. Um, you also bring this sort of, I don't want to say archaic, but forgotten form of action-adventure serial that was popular in the uh, 30s and 40s and 50s, where it would be here's your hero, here's your hero in peril in this situation, in this situation, moving from week to week where it was continuously, you know, leaving you in cliffhangers and kind of moving a story along. Um, and one of the more perfect examples of it, it's, it's pretty daring for 1981 for a movie that's ostensibly aimed at families and children with uh, the... The inclusion of the Nazis, which I guess was a little easier to do back then because then there wasn't as much in the way of people being automatically offended by, I don't know, certain things. But obviously the Nazis are 100% the villains in this movie. They're portrayed very well as the villains in this movie, along with one of my favorite cinema antagonists of all time in Rene Belloc, uh, who's Indies longtime rival in both the archaeological field and in terms of the affections of Marion Ravenwood, who's Indy's, I guess it was her childhood um, love interest. Mm -hmm. Indy was a protege of her father and she's, you know, everyone's I think has seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, so you know how Marion fits into it. But there's a lot of uh, interesting themes and very mature themes for, again, a movie aimed at families and children for some, in some measure. I feel like out of all the movies I saw as a kid, this was one of the ones where there was, one of the things that's really great about movies from this time period is that they'll make movies that are aimed at a younger audience and not condescend to that audience in a lot of ways. And this is one of those, the beginning of that trend throughout the 1980s, 
and you can say sort of started by Star Wars because I don't think Star Wars is ever condescending, but really just in terms of the action adventure and this, you know, inspiration for a bunch of different franchises and films that really treated you as a child, like with a measure of respect. So you weren't, it didn't dumb things down. It, it, it made you understand through dialogue and through the action of the movie. Um, some of the best set pieces, I think, in modern action take place in this movie with uh, obviously the opening scene uh, with Indy ra- running away from the, you know, raiding the temple basically and then running away from the um, the boulder and then having to run away from the indigenous people that Belloc has kind of turned on him. <clears throat> and then the scenes in Egypt with the well of the souls and all the snakes the scenes with him sneaking onto the u-boat and all the stuff that takes place in uh wherever they are damascus or whatever um to open up the the ark itself um one of the most horrifying scenes in my childhood film watching history including watching real horror movies as a child which is the opening of the well or the opening of the ark when tote's face melts away um, particularly horrifying but just a really fantastic, well-paced, well-acted movie. Uh, again, one of the best examples of, I think, the modern action film and definitely a movie that inspired many imitators and very few that even come close to rising to the the level of fun and just tension and excitement that you get out of watching this movie. And a movie that Again, another thing that I think speaks volumes to this time period is a movie that's eminently watchable no matter what age you are and throughout the course of your life. So I've seen indie, I've seen Raiders maybe, I don't know, a dozen times, probably more than that. And I've never not enjoyed watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. I've always found the Harrison Ford's performance, one of the most iconic performances of all time, both in the look and the attitude and his world weariness that he just carries on his face all the time and his levels of like consternation that he's trying to fight through in order to do the right thing and wanting to do the wrong thing and still being that kind of rapscallion that, you know, whatever, sometimes that he is willing to kind of cut corners, but still is noble and still trying to do right. Not only by the idea of, you know, his friends and, um, just like a sense of moral justice, but also in terms of the archaeological right of not destroying or profiting from these discovered, like amazing discoveries that they're coming across. So, which Belloc again as an antagonist is perfect because he's the absolute opposite of that. You know, he's suave and kind of conniving and definitely self-centered and thinks that he's in the right, which is another thing that makes him a great antagonist, is that he's always assured that what he's doing is for the the greater good, that he's just basically using the Nazis to achieve the right ends, but in reality is kind of sold his soul to the devil in a lot of ways to try and gain the fame and fortune, fortune and glory or whatever that um that comes with the exciting world of archaeological yeah. discovery. But yeah, just, I don't know. I mean, like, what else can you say about it? It's, it's it's an amazing movie. Yeah, I don't think I have much more to say than probably what I did earlier this year. But 
since you brought up Belloc being one of your favorite villains, it's interesting that Pauline Kale, like in her review, mentioned specifically that they she says they positioned Belloc to have a change of heart and then abandon it. And I don't feel like Belloc necessarily is going to have an overall change of heart. It's more of his kind of, I guess, sympathy or maybe like lust for Marion that signifies that. Not so much that he's going to change his view of working with the Nazis necessarily. Right. But Belloc is willing to use what he perceives as his authority and sway with the Nazis, you know, the, the Nazi party that he's with in order to do something that ultimately will benefit him in the long run, which is save Marion. So he can then bed Marion. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. there's a, maybe there's a point where you can even say that Belloc has the opportunity to change his mind or have this crisis of conscience where he changes his actions. But Belloc is firmly rooted in the idea that what he's doing is the best for himself. Yeah. And, and, and he certainly questions a couple times through looks and even speech like i suppose the nazis methods yeah he's he's not a violent man and there's no brutality in belloc mm-hmm. there's just naked ambition and absolute absolute self um self interest yeah self-interest and actualization like he's very much interested in what's best for renee belloc above all else and I think and, that makes him a worse villain, though, is that he understands the brutality and the horror of the Nazi party and the way that they behave and yet still goes along with them out of self-interest. Sure. I mean, it's the whole means to an end hmm. idea of villainy. It's, you know, not to compare apples and oranges, but you look at Thanos in the Avengers movies, it's the same idea. Mm-hmm. You can you can go and look at that character and one again, another one of the, the best villains, I think, of like modern cinema. You can look at that character and say, well, I can understand the ideology behind it, but ultimately you're still murdering half the universe's population. So, you know, Belloc might have ways that he can use evil to good ends, but it still is evil at its its core. So Yeah. So the I two, love, yeah. love Belloc. Such a good character. The two critics that, out of the five percent that give this a bad review, two of them. One is Pauline Kale, and she criticizes the pacing of the movie more than anything. Huh. Uh, she argues that from the old serials, the thing that they've forgotten is the idea of cliffhangers. I know I'm trying to find it here in the review. The movie-making team appears to have forgotten the basic thing about cliffhangers. We had a week to mull over how the hero was going to be saved from the trap he'd gotten himself into. We enjoyed testing our ingenuity against the movie makers. There's no room for speculation here. And Spielberg even loses track of what we want to see in a scene. He rides right over the dramatic possibilities. Similarly, Dave Kerr, is a, our good friend Dave Kerr, mm. is another one who gives this a negative review. And says something similar he says that you would think that this collaboration between spielberg and lucas which is noted that spielberg is only 33 years old here which is crazy and lucas is only 37 
but he says it would produce something better than this giggly pastiche of a Republic cereal, but then again, maybe not. Their gadget freak aesthetics and propensity for instant gratification seem to reinforce each other, which I do argue he's right later on <laughs> um, that they feed off of each other. I will I will give him that, but I don't think it's happening here. Uh, but I, I do think that's exactly what happened later on in their careers. And he goes on to say that Spielberg knows a lot about action cutting, but nothing about narrative rhythm. This 81 film travels fast and straight down a linear path and the ceaseless rush quickly becomes monotonous. Says the body count is somewhere on the far side of Dawn of the Dead, but with no sign of Romero's underlying moral seriousness. When a hero is given a choice between saving the booty or the woman he loves and chooses the booty both times, I have to wonder what makes him different from the Nazis he's fighting. But God, Spielberg tells us with dumbfounding literalness, that he's on his side i i find the moral indignation interesting from kerr here a little bit about the body count and about indy wanting to save the the the, the arc over marion but i also find it interesting that there's two of them that find the narrative rhythm so off-putting because i think the pacing of this is the best out of the three that I like overall, even though I like Last Crusade the least. Uh, I, I still think that the pacing on this one is the best. Yeah, my argument would be, so listening to those complaints, I'm guessing it's more along the lines of what Kale says and that she's looking for more of a a cliffhanger type approach where it's, here's a rising action, here's something that happens, then you get to see the resolution of that, and then it slides down again until it, you know, peaks and crescendos mm -hmm. along the way, and I don't know how that works in a, a narrative film, like a two-hour film. I mean, I think you have to tell one consistent narrative, and I think Indiana Jones, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark does a really good job of number one, moving you from place to place to place while still keeping your interest and explaining why you're moving all over the place and then wrapping it up in a way that is really sort of a cliffhanger in the sense of you know there's this art getting put into storage with all these other presumable artifacts and treasures that the government has just kind of hoarded but still is a satisfying end in the sense that you know indy and uh, Marion get away and are you know he's beaten the bad guys and in a lot of ways has kind of saved the world from them using the power of this whatever you want to call it like major religious artifact so I, I I don't agree with the pacing complaints at all and I would argue that history bears this movie out because Kasdan's script is well respected among script writers in terms of how he packs in exposition backstory and in each scene like and then keeps the plot plot still propelling forward through action and dialogue and injecting humor into it in fact it might be the blueprint for many of the movies that we see today that are action movies well sure you look at things like national treasure which are exactly mm -hmm a riff on Raiders of the Lost Ark in a lot of ways and are not as successful and aren't terrible movies, but they just don't have the same level of, 
there's just something really special about this movie and maybe it's because it's one of the first to do this format and formula for the time but i mean i just think it's i don't know i i don't understand the complaints about the pacing of it i guess each their own really but yeah so we 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 don't do this that often we did it more more on the quick cage than we have on the main podcast but since i don't know when we'll ever talk about raiders again i do want to do this little um exercise with you so i was looking at the casting and i think the most famous story out of this is that tom Selleck was initially going to be cast as indiana jones and cbs kind of fucked him over with a contract for Magnum P.I. and Harrison Ford ended up getting hired. But here are the other names that were considered for and some of them I'm going to skip because I don't know who they are. Well, I'll read them and see if you know who they are, but I don't know a couple of them. Bill Murray was considered for this at one point. I mean, it totally changed the character, but it's he was considered apparently. Uh, it's a different it would have to be a completely different version. Nick Nolte was considered for this. Steve Martin was considered. Chevy Chase was considered. Tim Matheson, a young Tim Matheson, I guess, was considered for this. Nick Mancuso, who I don't think I know. Peter Peter Coyote, Jack Nicholson, Jeff Bridges, John Shea, who I don't think I know, Sam Elliott, and Harry Hamlin were all considered at one point for this role. The casting director favored Jeff Bridges. And Lucas's wife uh, preferred Selleck. Could you see any I, of those people being as iconic as Ford ended up being out of this? Potentially. Selleck, I think, is a little too warm. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have the kind of sardonic almost approach to the character that i i don't believe he would have that same approach that ford has sure you said you said sam elliott sam elliott yep that might have been okay who was the last one harry hamlin i don't think he's a good enough actor right pull it off right he's i i actually just watched straight or um Clash of the Titans again the other day, and he's very wooden in that movie, so I can't imagine him being much better. In, I mean, he definitely has the look. I just don't think he has the chops, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, I, how, how do you see it as anybody but Harrison Ford? I know. I, 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 well, you can. I, that's why I was just kind of wanted to do the exercise to see if there's anybody you thought like could work in that. Because I can't. I can't imagine it. Uh, and certainly not being as popular as it ended up being. So, for Marion, Deborah Winger was offered the role, but wasn't interested. And then Spielberg wanted his girlfriend, Amy Irving, at the time, but she wasn't available. Uh, Barbara Hershey and Sean Young were also considered for the role before it went to Karen Allen. And again, I don't know if I can imagine... I do not like Sean Young. I, I don't think I can imagine Deborah Winger doing that role myself. You don't really like Deborah Winger, though, do you? I just think she's... I, I, I don't dislike her. I mean, what what Deborah, what's, what's Deborah Winger ever done? Legal Eagles? <laughs> you and Legal Eagles. 
Um, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know that anybody else does that role in the same way. Again, like I think there's a a certain girl next door vibe that comes from her. Um, yeah. I don't really think about that. That character is important, but it's in India is the one that matters. I think you can replace several 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 other people and still be fine, but you can't replace yeah. Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. So two two other smaller roles. Danny DeVito was approached to play Sala. That would have been fine. And he couldn't participate because of taxi. Um, and then Klaus Kinski was offered the role of Belloc and turned it down because Venom that he made that year, some horror mm-hmm. movie, yeah. offered, offered more money. <laughs> but That's pretty crazy because Venom is a... I mean, I would consider Venom like a C-level budget yeah. movie. Venom's a good movie, though. And Klaus Kinski, you know, I love Klaus Kinski. Sure. But Kinski almost played him, though. That's that, I, I would have been fine with that. I think that would have been amazing. Kinski, though, is a little too Eastern European villain for me. Oh, sorry. I, sorry. It's Tote, not Bella. Oh, well, then, yeah, 100%. Like, that would have been... Jesus, that would have been iconic. Like, in... The guy that plays Toad is fine, but sure. Kinski's right. menace and his crazy ass face and yes, Heil Hitler because the guy really that plays good. him now has like a just a weird enough face that he's highly memorable, like especially holding up his damn hand <clears throat> with that you know burned piece into it. <clears throat> yeah, but yeah, Clint. Kin- Kinski would have been, um, yeah, pretty amazing. That. All right. So, any final thoughts on this? No, I think we've talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark enough for okay. our entire lives. <laughs> All right. So, next that you want to talk about is Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits. It stars Greg Warnock. David Rappaport, Genny Baker, David Warner, Sean Connery, Shelley Duvall, Ian Holm, Michael Palin, Peter Vaughn, Catherine Hellman, John Cleese, and others that I'm probably missing. It has a 90% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 77% from audiences. We've never talked about this movie before, so you want to just tell us a little bit about it and um, why it's on the list. So, fantasy adventure movie from... The mind of one of the more, in my opinion, creative kind of outsider uh, directors in cinema through the 70s and the 80s. And Terry Gilliam uh, follows the story of Kevin, who's a bright and uh, curious kid that's kind of ignored by his parents who are more obsessed with the idea of material gain and keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak, than they are with raising their son. Uh, One night. As he sleeps, his wall opens up and a knight bursts through, um, followed by a troop of little people. Um, so he ends up going on this adventure, like following through the the whatever these portals in his walls, where he's taken to different time periods, different settings. Uh, so Robin Hood, the Napoleonic Wars, ancient Greece outer space um these fantasy worlds that couldn't exist where there's giants that walk through the water and basically goes on this adventure with these thieves who are under the employ of a mysterious master and they're trying to steal 
um, treasure using this map. Like they they basically run away from God, and they're using a map to these portals that take you to different places in time, so that they can steal different treasures. They come off as it's sort of like they're kind of analogous to Robin Hood, I guess, in a lot of ways. Um, but more in the sense that they're not robbing from the rich to give to the poor. They're just robbing from everyone to keep for themselves. But they have morals and they have, they end up taking him in and kind of grooming him to be part of their team. Um, he, they end up running afoul of the evil, which is the David Warner character, who is basically the embodiment of all evil in the universe, who also is looking for the map so he can kind of overthrow God. So there's a very, um, I don't know, like old, old religion, biblical feel to that, but in sort of a comedic way. And ultimately he, they end up beating the evil. And it turns out that God was sort of setting up the time bandits, the troop of little people to kind of test his creation to make sure that, cause they genuinely work for him to test his creation and sort of look for loopholes and see if the evil is the actual evil that he wants to go with and obviously it doesn't work um so back to the drawing board and then ultimately kevin's parents even though their house is burning down are more interested in the chunks of evil they find on the ground which incinerate them and leave kevin sort of as an orphan so there's a couple things I love about this movie. And there's the first thing, which is the thing I've loved about this movie since I was, I don't know, six years old, probably when I saw it for the first time. And then that I love about this movie consistently throughout my life as I watch it. And so the first part of that is just the visual aesthetic that Terry Gilliam brings to projects. I think he has a very Brothers Grimm-esque approach to fantasy and to the way that things look. Um, everything feels just on the, the cusp of being realistic, but still with, I don't know how to explain it. It's hard. It's like, it's kind of the feeling I get from watching Legend, but I think it, Gilliam is much more electric in the way that he directs than um, Scott is in Legend. So there's a lot of good set pieces and again i think this is a good companion piece with indiana jones because there's you know chase and adventure and outsmarting much more powerful opponents uh, there's a really sad scene where kevin is sort of adopted by sean connery who's playing is it agamemnon or he's he's playing some one of the rulers of ancient greece or athens it, or is, something. it is agamemnon yeah and has this life set aside like set up for him where he's going to be cared for and loved and he'll have the the ability to to learn and to grow and then here's these dwarves coming back and sweeping them away you know take them away from this perfect life um, which when you watch it when you're a kid you kind of feel disappointed for kevin but the thing i like about it more as an adult is i don't really view this movie necessarily as being I always think of this movie as being in the mind of Kevin, that Kevin is a kid who's alone, who doesn't have any friends, whose parents ignore him and neglect him, and who's fallen into basically his imagination as a way to kind of supplant the awfulness of his real life. And I think the reason why 
little people are used in that situation is because those are the people that Kevin feels that he can sort of be on the same level as like he's not dealing with giants or bullies or ogres or these larger than life figures from history he's got these people that are adults but they're the same the smaller than him basically he towers over him in some sense and more or less the whole movie is just about i think it's a, a condemnation really of like british middle class at the time and the idea of the stiff upper lip and the you can't you know you have to the whatever the rule britannia idea that you have to always be working to be better and working to earn things and collect the material goods and be better than the people next to you and i mean in the end his parents i don't necessarily think his parents die i think all that stuff is in his imagination i mean i don't think that anything that happens in this movie legitimately happens in this movie i think that it's all happening through kevin's imagination because he's such a miserable lonely little kid agree um and gilliam revisits that idea numerous times throughout his career uh, sometimes in more fantastical ways like baron munchausen in brazil and sometimes in kind of more horrific ways like tideland but gilliam's really almost obsessed with the idea of why it's important for us to treat our children well basically and to raise them to be empathetic and compassionate and to show them love and you know parent whatever like parental concern <clears throat> and in the end i mean kevin is it shows how self-sufficient he is because for the most part it's him figuring out all the ways for them to get ahead or them to get through you know the dangers in front of them so but i love the look of the movie i think it's got a good tongue-in-cheek sense of humor to it the stuff especially with the giant with the boat on his head i think is amazing like i love the visuals of that those set pieces and i really love uh when they're at the the end of the universe or whatever and they're on top of the pillars that are just kind of suspended in space that's always made me feel very uneasy watching those scenes when they're jumping between the cages that are filled with the bones of the dead you know trying to trying to escape those traps and then the stuff with evil at the end and <laughs> them having the, the whatever the laser tank or whatever and then the real tank and the knights and all this stuff i mean I, just, I don't know i i love the visual flavor of the movie and i love the inventiveness of it and, and i don't think it's a movie that i love just because of nostalgia because there's things like the never-ending story and i bring that up a lot but that's a movie where it's difficult for me to watch it today even though i still have large pangs of nostalgia watching it where i think like oh, i used to love this scene but as an adult, I can say, eh, you know, this isn't necessarily the best movie. I still think Time Bandits is an amazing movie, and I, I enjoy it every time I see it. That's all I got. Yeah, I, I think you're, I understand why you compared it to Legend, but you're right. It's much more kinetic uh, and well-paced, I think, than that movie, and much more realistic in a lot of ways in the way that it's filmed. I. I agree with you on everything you said about what this movie is about. I also kind of, I mean, this movie, Brazil and Munchausen, kind of are a loose trilogy, aren't they? I think, and it's like a ch a child, a middle, uh, like a middle aged man and an older man, all trying to escape this the grim the grim reality of their 
actual existence, basically. Yeah. Right. And I so I I am I saw this movie later in life. I didn't see it as a child, which I know you're preempt preempting me a little bit of the accusation that <laughs> you 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 have nostalgia for this movie and that's why you have it on the list. I I, I get where you're coming from. I, I don't necessarily think it's just because of nostalgia. I do think seeing it older, uh, somewhere in my teens, probably like 14, 15, somewhere in there for the first time. And then watching it again now, I just don't think I, I think there's supposed to be humor in it to some degree. Like I'm supposed to feel like some of it is fun at times in terms of the adventure aspect of it. And I just don't find the adventure fun myself. And that's... (laughs) And that's just the middle of the movie. I love the framing device of it. I think you're exactly right in terms of like your analysis of like what this movie is actually about in terms of criticizing that British middle class lifestyle and all those kind of things. And I'll be honest, I love the bleakness of the ending. Of course, they like they all kind of like doesn't matter whether you're a child, whether you're middle aged or whether you're old. It's like you don't really make it out. Right. In terms of escaping that reality. Right. I think it's really damn ballsy to have such a bleak ending with a child here and i think that plays through with gilliam a lot is these kind of bleak endings and i think it's really ballsy to do it with with a kid so i really like the framing device i really think i like the message of this movie i just don't necessarily care care for the vignette nature of it how it kind of is a bunch of short stories which i'm not a big fan of in the first place kind of like moving from like one setting and place and time to another i like some of them more than others but i don't think i like that nature of it so much and i don't feel the excitement and i wonder if that excitement maybe comes from seeing at a younger age potentially and transferring the you can almost recall the excitement that you feel in the adventure aspect of it i just don't have the the excitement over the adventure aspect of it quite as much myself so let me ask you this question as a like some some arm armchair psychology right a lot of my good times as a kid were based on 100% like my imagination and my invention of the world around me. And that's always been something that I've enjoyed doing was like, whatever, like fantasy and making up worlds and inventing stories and things like that. And you're a lot more, I think, like reality grounded in those ways. Mm-hmm. Like, I think a lot of your enjoyment comes more from not necessarily the fantastical or whatever, but from things that are like more based in reality. And do you think that has an effect on, especially if you saw it older, where maybe you don't quite have the same emotional connection to the kid himself and the idea of like continuously, like reinventing your surroundings in order to make yourself interested in, in life. I think that's possible. Yes. Because a lot of my childhood was spent, you know, I mean, we lived in Baltimore until I was six or seven, but when we moved up here, a lot of my childhood was spent in outside and running around and inventing stories with, you know, 
limited companions where it was me just kind of like building these fantasy narratives and i think the time bandit speaks to that feeling that i would have doing that and obviously like i had great parents and i didn't have a terrible childhood but still like i was alone a decent amount of the time and a lot of you know would be picking up a like having a play sword or a play gun and then creating this all day narrative of like what i was doing <clears throat> away you know just to kind of fill my life with something other than just sitting on the floor watching cartoons or whatever i guess i don't know like so i find a sort of a resonance there with me and my childhood from that perspective of the idea of like you know you would read whatever connecticut yankee and king arthur's quarter something like that you know and then like oh well i'm gonna go be king arthur and run around and pretend like you were on horseback and pretend like you were fighting knights and dragons and shit i don't know yeah i i i mean look it's it's obvious through talking about the fantasy movies that we've talked about previously and those kind of things that i there's something about that kind of stuff that just doesn't appeal to me uh whatsoever and i don't know what that's about it could be that i relate these movies to things like legend and excalibur and the, and i'm not a big fan of monty, monty python like either so yeah. there could be like a sense of like there's a britishness to some things that i'm not a big fan of and that's one of the aspects i really don't like about one of my least favorite aspects about this movie is that it feels like a Monty Python light at times. Sure. And I'm just, I don't like Monty Python outside the life of Brian. So. So the funny thing about it is that I always think of myself as not being a fan of overly British things, but I think maybe I am. Like, I think I really enjoy that dry not even tongue-in-cheek but kind of droll humor i guess i like monty python a lot and i still i don't find it as funny as i did when i was young but i still really enjoy a lot of monty python the ideas behind him and the execution of him and you know um quest for the holy grail it doesn't make me laugh out loud like it did when i was i don't know 13 years old or whatever but I still appreciate the visual aesthetic of it and just the sheer effort put in by those guys to create this parodied world of King Arthur, which is in all honesty, you know, pointing out the, a lot of this stuff is pointing out the things that you don't like about the very British, whatever, legends and myths and sure. that whole really like self-important view that that Britons have of themselves, I think a lot of times. And Monty Python really like and Terry Gilliam as you know by whatever association like really takes the piss out of that in a lot of ways. So right. I don't know. Yeah, I, I I yeah, I I'm not a there's things I find funny in Monty Python and I really appreciate I appreciate them just like I appreciate John Waters. Where John Waters I feel like I don't like all of his movies, but I appreciate his movies. Sure. And so I, I appreciate 
you know that that troop you know for that kind of stuff but um but yeah like i i don't know i i mean i think you're right i think it ties into i think it ties into a lot of things like why i just can't like get invested in the narrative or the plot of this movie um i don't know i I, i'll I'll be honest I'm, i'm sure it's multifaceted and but yeah, I, there's things I really like about this, and there's things. It's really just like the the middle that I just kind of I don't even dislike it. It's just like okay. So here's another comparison too, and then we can move on from this mm-hmm. movie. In a lot of ways, Time Bandits is surrealism light. It's surrealism for Junior. You know what I mean? So it shares, in essence, similarities in terms of the way that scenes are composed and the way that images are given to you and kind of the way the narrative is sort of split and fractured among scenes as and vignettes as you called it as opposed to being continuous but it's similar in a lot of ways to things like holy mountain and el topo and unshan andalu and you know the more famous surrealism from and i know that gilliam was an absurdist so i think that he pulls a lot from that and probably a lot more from Buñuel than um, Jodorowsky. But it is set up in a lot of ways like that. Like, here's an absurd situation with an iconic character that you know, and then let's move on quickly to the next absurd situation. And I think that's, again, I think it's a a very basic form of surrealism in a lot of ways that Gilliam is presenting. And I think that Brazil does that too, but just Brazil does it in a way that's more focused as a narrative, you know, and obviously more adult because of the setting. But I think the time minutes does a good job of it. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I love it so much is because I like movies that, that are like that. Yeah. I do think the adult aspect of Brazil, because I really like Brazil. I think the adult aspect of that really um, is like the big difference though. Cause I, I love Brazil. And, and it has more of a sci-fi bent to it too well i mean this has sci-fi bent fucking time travel i don't I, I don't know i mean i really don't because i really like brazil a lot i mean gilliam has made a number of movies that like i really like and yeah i don't, I don't, I don't know what it is there there is something about like him being closer because he's made, like, I don't find this funny, but he's made one of my favorite comedies of all time by adapting Fear and Loathing. Right. So, there... again, it's it's a very adult, yeah, adult themed and adult centric. And maybe that's the thing is that, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Anyway, Time Bands is also on HBO Max if anybody's interested and ever seen it. So, uh, I think it's worth watching. Absolutely. Friend of the podcast, Ryan Wilmaker, and I love Time Bandits, so yes. if that tells you anything. I remember there was a time when Orion, I think it was an exaggeration, but he claimed that he, or maybe we we claimed for him that he'd only seen three movies in his entire life, and what was it, T2, Time Bandits, and I, I can't remember the other one now. It was an yeah. Indiana Jones movie, wasn't it? it, wasn't it, it yeah, maybe that's what it was, yeah. Um I think it was more of a joke but at the time that he'd only, there's only three movies. But yeah, that was one of them was Time Bandit. So, um, yeah, he's always had a deep appreciation and love for that movie. All right. Uh, so the next movie we were going to discuss is Brian De Palma's, damn, these directors, man. Brian right. De Palma's Blowout. 
It stars John Travolta, Nancy Allen, John Lithgow, Dennis Franz. It has an 85% from critics, 82% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it's on the list? So Blowout is De Palma's almost direct rework, not even almost, direct reworking of Michelangelo Antonioni's Blowout, uh, the David Hemmings movie we talked about on some podcasts at some point. Yeah. Um, so Travolta is a sound engineer that works in low budget horror films where he's the man that records the whistling in the wind and the howling of the cats and the screams of the women or whatever. And then in post-production helps assemble the soundtrack of the movie. Travolta is told by his producer that his wind whistling sounds are stale because they use them over and over and he needs to go get new ones. So he goes out to a park in Philadelphia to record these sounds at night and he's getting whistling in the wind and the hooting of an owl and the creaking of branches. And while he's out recording this, a car has a ostensibly a blowout of one of its tires, loses control, goes over a bridge and crashes into the water. Travolta runs down to see if he can help and ends up rescuing a woman that was trapped in the car. Uh, the man that was trapped in the car turns out to have been gubernatorial candidate who was looking to unseat the, or no, he, he is the governor, right? Yes. I don't remember. Anyway, so he's the governor, but he's, no, he's running he's run run for as governor. a presidential. Yeah. No, he's going to run for president. Okay. And they've, the current president, the sitting president, is losing to him like 62% to that's right. Yeah. 35% or 36% in the polls if he were to run today. So he dies, the woman is rescued. Travolta is kind of ushered out of the hospital and told to take the woman away by the aides of the governor, which he does and he starts to listen to the footage he was recording and realize that there's another sound immediately before the tire blows out and the car goes off the road and becomes obsessed in the similar way that Hemmings was obsessed with continuously enhancing and blowing up the picture to the point where he saw the dead body underneath the bush. Travolta does the same thing and ends up finding that there's a gunshot report that happens immediately before the tire and then is able to take amateur photography footage that was taken by a guy that was in the park at the time who you later find out was sort of the pimp of the woman that Travolta rescued because they were running a, um, what would you call that? Almost like a, like a Dear John scam on people where mm-hmm. she sleeps with them and then he takes pictures and then they extort money out of them right. to keep it out of the press or away from their wives. I can't remember what the name of that scam is, but yeah. But he takes pictures and actually has photographic evidence to where Travolta is able to assemble a rudimentary film with a soundtrack showing the car and showing the moment when the gun muzzle goes off. <clears throat> so he starts to fall in love uh, with Susie, who's the woman, the um, prostitute slash, I don't know what you call her, bait slash honestly makeup girl that has aspirations to you know be better than what she is. And at the same time, John Lithgow, who was hired by the governor's political rival who went off course and murdered them is on their tail to try and kill her 
and erase any footage that he has so no one can prove that anything had happened. So there's a lot of tense moments in this movie where there's a feeling of paranoia before it's really revealed. They they show you kind of early on that Lithgow is this bad man that's doing these terrible things, but there still is kind of almost a sense of, is that really happening or is there really like danger until, you know, Lithgow murders a woman that looks like um, Susie and then frames it as being a serial killer of women that look the same so he can murder her and not have any suspicion, which is, I I think one of the most brilliant like plot points in the movie. Uh, Ultimately, uh, Travolta is unable to save her. She ends up getting killed by Lithgow and then he kills Lithgow and in the end is kind of left alone where the whole crux of the movie in the first place was this um, this actress in a B-horror movie who screamed and her scream was terrible and that led to the discussion of how the sound effects in these movies have gotten stale um, and they used the dying scream of Susie as the scream to dub over this woman in the movie they're filming and he's just kind of like broken and empty at the end um it's hard for me to ever say that any like i love michelangelo antonioni i think the blowout is a more engaging and interesting movie than blow up um i i don't know if it's as good of a film but i think that in terms of the narrative and the performances i think that you definitely can relate to and like john travolta's character more than you can david hemming's character who's kind of a cad and just sort of a like a jerk that just happens upon this conspiracy whereas travolta is genuinely a decent guy who's trying to do the right thing he used to be he used to work for the police department where he would wire cops to go after corrupt other corrupt police officers so he's not very popular with the police department which is an interesting subplot um franz is really good in it um alan's good in it travolta's great in it uh lithgow is really good there's just a it's an interesting movie um it's really well filmed i'm not the biggest fan of De Palma, and i think that De Palma is very i think De Palma is always on the cusp of being really obnoxious with his camera work and his cuts but it's just it just works here where it's sometimes his camera moves a little too much but ultimately he captures all the action and he he's more uses, restra- he's more restrained here though i'd say yeah well he's definitely is filming a more traditional hitchcockian noir movie here yeah. and using the city of philadelphia as a really impressive backdrop for all these things um including filming on like actual you know city streets in like south philly and um that i know like we're familiar with just from living in this area for a long time mm-hmm. Um, which is another reason why I like the movie so much. I think it's just because like it feels so familiar all the time, even though it was filmed, you know, 10, 12 years before I was going into Philadelphia regularly, more than that, like 15 years. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's a really taut, tense, well done thriller with the central conceit of him. There's a scene where he's sitting there listening over and over to the sound of the blowout. Yeah. and continuously moving levels so he can isolate it and there's just something about that where it's like here's this man like pushing to find this forbidden thing and eventually discovering it uh, that i find to be really fascinating and really well done yeah 
it's a, yeah, it's a big coup for AV nerds um, in 1981 is to um, is to see this movie because it really takes great pains to show all the things that he's doing for this investigation when it comes to audio and visual like aids uh, to to try to like figure this out and solve this and that's not something that was sexy or fashionable necessarily at that time so i i I think that aspect of it is really interesting uh just to follow up on a couple of things we talked about antonioni's blow up on episode four which is the top five palm door winners Mm. uh maybe the greatest list of movies we've ever covered in at one time the conversation blow up fear diana the third man in pulp fiction (laughs) really really, uh, so it's it's interesting that it's been that long since we talked about blow up but i think that where i think antonioni is way too interested in the scene like the popular culture scene around london at the time that he filmed that movie mm -hmm. where it's almost the idea of the murder mystery kind of takes a back seat to just the idea of showing this mod lifestyle that Hemming's character is living, where I really feel that De Palma invests the weight of the movie in his his characters, and I, I think agree. that's what makes it like such a such a fascinating movie to watch, and why it still holds up. And uh, you know, you never you never feel like there's any kind of like dull moment in this movie and it really kind of even though there's not a whole lot of quote-unquote action there's always things propelling the story forward and interesting exchanges and watching Travolta become more and more kind of unhinged as he starts to doubt himself and then all of his tapes get erased and he can't doubt himself and then no one will believe him because now he has no evidence I mean there's there's a lot of really great stuff in this movie I agree, and I really like this movie, but now I'm more interested in the idea of this versus Blow Up, because honestly, despite agreeing with you that Travolta is a more likable protagonist, or is just a protagonist, where I don't know if the character in Blow Up is a protagonist, honestly, I I I, I like that movie more, I think, than Blow Out. But I still really like Blowout for being a completely kind of different movie. Like they're 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 not they're they're almost apples and oranges to me, right? In, in, in what they're trying to do, I think this is designed to be a thriller where you have a likable protagonist that you want to see accomplish the goal that he set out to accomplish, and. I like that aspect of this, and I think it's extremely well done. I think visually. Antonioni versus De Palma. I've probably seen both of these movies the same amount of times, which I think is three. Antonioni, there's scenes that I'll still occasionally think about in Blow Up with him, where I think there's a lot of things that are forgettable visually in Blowout comparatively. Yeah, see, I don't agree with that. Like, I'm I think there's really good stuff in Blowout. Don't get me wrong. Don't like I, there's things that are memorable, really memorable. But I think there's more that's forgettable in that than Blow Up. <clears throat> Look, I love Blow Up, and I think Blow Up is the better film. And 100% Antonioni is a better filmmaker than, than 
Brian De Palma. But I think Blowout is the better movie from just a, I'm going to sit down and be entertained for two hours. I agree with that. And like, there's no, there's no, if your goal is to just be entertained, I agree with that. Right. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no extraneous things in Blowout like, the Yardbirds or whatever be in, sure, in a, sure. scenes for 20 minutes, you know, and I like those scenes in blow up. And I think there's a lot to speak to why Antonioni is creating this idea that this man that lives on the other end of the camera and has this lifestyle that's kind of separate from the world is now being pulled into the world unwilling, you know, unwittingly. And so I think that Antonio creates a lot of, really interesting scenes and scenarios playing with that idea of Hemings being detached and being forced into interacting with, with the world in a meaningful way. Yeah. And De Palma's not that, not being that deep, you know, I mean, Travolta's heart is on his sleeve in a lot of ways as sure, you know, in that, in that role. But if you asked me if I had two hours to kill and I was just going to watch a movie, I would watch blow up out every single time. I think as much as I love blow up. Yeah, interesting. I don't. I don't know if I would make the same choice myself. But I. But I. That's that's interesting. I and I really like this movie a lot. But um, that's interesting. I didn't mean to actually compare it to Blow Up this much. But since you brought it up, like in the first part of what you yeah. said, I mean, I don't know how you. I don't know how you can't because I mean, it basically is sure, sure. Um, the main thing I I wanted to bring up about this was Travolta himself, which watching this and watching Travolta's performance in this in 1981 which honestly is one of the last movies that he and I think it's one of his best movies early in his career maybe his best honestly in terms of performance and his career just goes downhill from here because he was so typecast from the things he had done previous to this movie that like it's only what seven years down the road or something like that that he's in fucking look who's talking right and it's a shame what happens to Travolta because we saw during his Tarantino revival in the mid 90s that he he can't do everything obviously but the guy can give good performances and I think this is one of his really good performances and he just, I don't know if it's a combination of picking bad movies or typecasting or what the hell's going on, but like, this is a really good performance by Travolta, and he could have been a leading man in the 80s, and I don't know what the hell happened, because this is a solid performance for not an action star, but for a protagonist in something like a Gene Hackman mold or something like that, like the conversation or, you know, night moves or something like that. Like Travolta could have played a lot of those roles like that, that in eighties versions of the, of, of movies like that. And um, no, it's a shame because it's a really good performance. Yeah. There's um, there's a scene that I was really struck by watching at this time. And I remember the scene, but I don't think I realized how good Travolta is in it, where him and Nancy Allen are sitting in the diner after he's kind of convinced her to miss her train. (laughs) And they're discussing her life and his life and why they do the things they do. And his his performance in the like interstitial vignette that showing, you know, why he's no longer with law enforcement but also just his performance with her Mm -hmm. 
it's really powerful. It's really subdued and controlled and not at all that kind of frantic John Travolta you think of, like, to your point, like, from Look Who's Talking or whatever. But, yeah, just um, a really great performance. And Well, let me tell you, you don't know this. Let me tell you this. The moment that I realized Travolta is really fucking good in this movie, and I put that down in my notes that I wanted to talk about Travolta's performance, is that exact scene that you're talking about. It really kind of... It- it gets you like and i mm-hmm. don't remember again like i remember the scene because i've seen this movie five or six times but i remember i was sitting there watching it the other day and thinking man like she is he is really good right now like that's there there's some maturity in this in this young man yes so if you never in, in s- fact in that scene i think he blows nancy allen out of the water in that scene oh yeah yeah Unfortunately, she's not given a whole lot to work with for she's most not. of the time because she's basically just a MacGuffin yeah. to kind of drive him along and sort sure. of humanize him more by showing his love, his burgeoning love for this, you know, this way. Agreed. Wayward and, she, woman. and she's decent in this movie. It's actually one of her better roles, I think, um, when you look at her filmography. And but but he just he's so damn good in that scene of his there's a vulnerability on that screen that makes you care for him and, uh, and, and root for him like after that scene. And um, yeah. And he just blows her out of the water, even though it's a good performance from her. I know that it was a movie that I didn't expect to like when I was young and I watched it and mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. And yep. it's something where when I've had the chance to get other people to watch it, that I haven't seen that I've tried to. So if you're listening to this, and you've never seen blowout it's free on tubi it's a minimal amount of commercials it's definitely worth the two hours of your life that would take you to sit there and watch it and i think you'll really enjoy it oh is it free on tubi now yeah it's on tubi god damn it okay fine a tubi and some service i don't subscribe to pluto or something like that oh it's on pluto now too is, is, is that a thing yeah yeah it's a free service pluto but free on both of those. So. Okay. Well, that just came up recently. Um, I guess, but whatever. It's fine. It has it at least in the last five days because that's when I watched it. So. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the other thing I just want to follow up on very quickly is the official name of what you were describing is sextortion now, mm-hmm. but there was a slang term for it in the forties, like during the noir period, and I can't find that like term um but the technical term apparently is sextortion um what you were describing about taking photos yes it's about as classy as the act i would also recommend people watch blow up too Uh, yes 100 percent uh just to have like that comparison point uh if you're if you're interested I'm not going to lie. I actually don't like telling people to watch Antonio new movies because I just like them to be mine. So, well, <laughs> well, you need to get that, get over that shit. <laughs> we only got like another month left. <clears throat> it's going to be the top Spoiler. five Antonio movies. None. <laughs> don't watch any don't watch. Pod- podcast over. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, the last two movies that you wanted to talk about, both of them Australian movies. The first is Gallipoli, uh, 
directed by Peter Weir. It stars Mel Gibson, Mark Lee, Bill Kerr, and Ron Graham. It has a 91% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 83% from audiences. I'm assuming most people are probably not familiar with this movie. So you want to tell us a little bit about what it uh, is about and then um, why you put it on the list here. So sort of a tale in two parts of the the British invasion of uh, Turkey in the 1910s, 19 teens, I think it's like 1915 or something like that, when this takes place, where Australia is still a British colony. So yeah, it's 15, you got it. <clears throat> the Australians are being conscripted through a draft and through voluntary service into going to the Strait of Gallipoli to be the driving force to distract the Turks so the British can kind of sneak in the back and sort of a a pronged attack where they can go in and (coughs) drive the Turk. Basically, it was the British Empire versus the Ottoman Empire is is this this war. So the first part of the movie follows these two young runners, one of whom played by Mel Gibson and the other one played by, what is his name? Nick Lee or something like that? Mark Lee. Mark Lee. Where they're two highly recognized and celebrated um, sprinters in the Australian outback kind of. Uh, Lee is more ideological and sort of training and running to be an Olympic-style sprinter, whereas Gibson is more, he wants to run if he can bet on himself and earn money based on his own ability. Uh, so Lee beats Gibson in a race. They kind of are prickly towards each other, but then they become friends, end up hopping a train to go to Perth and getting lost in the the desert of whatever the outback. So they have to walk 50 miles to Perth. Um, and Lee wants to join the Light Horsemen, uh, the mounted cavalry division of um, the Australian military. In order to go to Gallipoli, Gallipoli to fight, Gibson initially has no interest in it, but then sees that there's a way that he can sort of earn money and <clears throat> increase his position in life by doing this. So he also agrees to join the military, gets scripted into the infantry. So they kind of diverge at that point, and you see them both, mostly Gibson, building relationships with his peers, and they go to... The Middle East, they're in Turkey, they're in where the pyramids are, kind of training, and it's very innocent still at that point, and it's got this really high level of camaraderie with these men just being friends and kind of being competitors, but also um, brothers in a lot of ways, and then they get sent to war, and when they get sent to war, it turns out that the Australians are nothing more than a distraction for the British. Um, There's no mounted cavalry. They're just meant to go into the trenches and then run across the, whatever they call it, uh, the no man's land um, and get shot down by the Turks. Uh, This happens twice where two waves of Australians are sent and are immediately mown down by superior Turkish forces the British commander keeps ordering that the sergeant that's in charge of the platoon where uh, Al, or, um, 
Lee and Gibson are doesn't want to send any more people to die because it's fruitless. So he has <clears throat> he initially takes Lee and tells him to go run to the general that's down the beach to see if they can call off the attack and countermand this corporal's decision to attack. But Lee, being a true patriot, wants to be the one to rush into battle and lets his friend be the one to be the runner. So Gibson has to run down the beach and finally gets the general's approval to call off the attack, but doesn't make it back in time as this group of young men is sent into the breach, basically, to be killed. Um, with Lee dying through, you know, being shot in sort of the same pose that he would be in as he's crossing the finish line of a, of a race. Uh, Lee was only 17 years old. <coughs> His character... Uh, that's the he kind of had to lie to get to join the army so really tragic that this young man in the prime of his youth and with so much potential killed for nothing so in a lot of ways it's sort of similar in composition to something like full metal jacket where you definitely have two parts of the movie and the one part is the the pre-war ritualistic element of people signing up to join the military and then the horrors of actual war. I, um, I did not, I did not think about that whatsoever. Sorry. Continue. I mean, I don't, I, that, that's what it reminds me of. Honestly. You're, you're exactly right. I'm just saying I didn't, I didn't consider that, but please go ahead. I'm sorry. So the reason that this movie is really important and Peter Weir is one of, I think the more underrated directors from the seventies and eighties, the Battle of Gallipoli and the sacrifice of all these Australian men, because a lot of people came back, well, dead. There was a lot of deaths, but also wounded and maimed, you know, so they were like missing limbs and stuff. The Battle of Gallipoli is really the turning point towards Australian self-actualization, where they stop viewing themselves as a colony of Britain and needing to be at the beck and call of the British Empire and really started to view themselves as their own sovereign nation that can make their own decisions and not fight other people's battles and this this specific battle is almost like uh, this might not be 100 percent right so if you're more familiar with australian history i apologize if i'm not correct here but i think that this is almost viewed in the same way that we, we view something like july 4th or maybe even d-day where it's celebrated in australia as this monumental like sort of australian independence day or australian self-awareness day or something um, but definitely an important holiday in australia <clears throat> and i think that there's some historical inaccuracies here especially in terms of the way that the colonel is portrayed and the british generals are portrayed i mean it's it's very subtly anti-british and it's not as anti-british as some other australian movies about similar topics but it's definitely not the most positive portrayal of the british empire but weir is more concerned with the spirit of the australian people in showing it and just the resilience and kind of what's celebrated in most australian movies when you see them where the australians aren't just like i don't know gate mouth idiots like antagonists but the friendly combative competitive nature of people that can be at odds but still be friends and 
there's just a lot of really great small moments in this movie, especially with uh, Lee and, and Gibson. It's a, amazing Mel Gibson. Um, so talking about this and then the next movie, which just to spoil it is, is the road warrior to see Mel Gibson here playing a 18 or 19 year old kid, basically. Mm-hmm. And looking like an 18 or 19 year old kid and simultaneously filming a movie where he's playing what's supposed to be like a 30 year old man yeah and looking like a 30 year old man it's 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 pretty impressive that he's able to bridge that that range so much between those two uh i think it's a brilliant performance by gibson i love peter weir's just natural eye for filming places that actually exist so the outback gallipoli itself the pyramids just the way that he frames shots and the way that he films with natural light and i think that peter weir is one of the one of the more talented naturalistic filmmakers ever um and i think it's 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 a very tragic story of this young man who had all this promise and this uncle that loved him and wanted to help make him sort of an australian national hero and he was he was tricked into thinking that his sense of nationalism of going to fight for the british empire was justified and I think it's the ultimate example of how that sort of, again, like that Rue Britannia um, nationalism never served a purpose to anyone that they colonized, how it was always a negative, had a negative impact on the colonized. And it does so in a way that doesn't like beat you over the head with it and isn't immediately apparent, but is still powerful and, and moving. Um, so I, I, don't know, I, I think Gallipoli is a really good movie. Um, I think it's some really great performances. Again, I'm a sucker for Australia, so I love anything that shows you like the Outback or whatever. But um, maybe not a movie for everyone, but I think that if you're interested in, and it's weird too, because you know that I'm not a huge fan of historical fiction and film, but there's something about historical fiction for things that I don't really know a lot about that I find more interesting rather than just World War II or the Civil War whatever, like that stuff that I feel like we've seen millions of times. And maybe the Australians feel the same way about this, but um, I, I think this is still a really important movie in Australian cinema. And I know that there was an anniversary recently where it got re-released in Australia um, in cinemas just to kind of celebrate like the anniversary of whatever. I, I can't remember what the name of that day is. It's the um, name of the An- invasion. An- An- Anzac. Anzac the- there you go. Um, so yeah. And we'll talk about Peter Weir again at other points. I'll find a way, but uh, definitely, definitely worth seeing. I think, and free right now on Prime, I believe. Yes, it's well. I haven't checked for December, but it was free on Prime. Yeah. Um, I can just quickly look. It's still free on Prime. Yes. Yep. If you're a Prime member. Um. Yeah. This was a good movie. I, I was laughing about the idea that you talked about the framing device about it being two different movies only because we've never talked about Full Metal Jacket on here, but we've always had this contention about how I think the first half of the movie is really good and the second half of the movie is not very good. And you like the entirety of the movie. <laughs> and I feel similarly to this only not as severely as we've discussed full metal jacket 
privately in the past right where i really liked the first half of this movie a lot and as soon as it got into the war aspect of the movie not as much but i actually one of the few things i liked about this movie is that i'm not a fan of war movies and i like this um i i liked the war aspect of this movie overall but well, it's because still, they're yeah they're, di- they're it's still diluted <laughs> but my my how pleased i am watching it but i i i got through it and i liked it i mean even the war part of this movie only lasts for 25 minutes really sure because even when they're over in turkey they're still it still is more of like a buddy comedy almost and not a buddy comedy but a buddy dramedy maybe whereas full metal jacket is here's 45 minutes and then there is definitely a hard cut and then it's mm-hmm you're all Vietnam War after that. Um, I, you know, I, I love Full Metal, Full Metal Jacket. I had never really thought of this movie as being sort of a companion piece to it, but I think in a lot of ways, uh, maybe not a companion piece, but it's just, they're very similar in terms of the way that they're constructed. And I think that it's interesting that these two brilliant directors uh, When's Full Metal Jacket? 86, I think. So I wonder if I wonder if uh, Kubrick saw Gallipoli and said, you know, I like the way that that's done, but not putting so much because really there's no antagonist in this movie. I mean, everybody is sort of on the up and up. I mean, there's one guy that's kind of an antagonist, but he's more of just just kind of a dick. I mean, he's not even like he he's beaten within the first 10 minutes of the movie gen sort of um just a story of friendship and camaraderie and national pride and i don't know i just think it's a i think it's a, a beautiful movie yeah you're right about gibson in this gibson is doing that charismatic gibson stuff a lot in this movie the things that he becomes famous for of that dichotomy of character that he has where he can be really fucking charismatic. Like I'm let me lethal weapon. Like he can be really fun and charismatic and have that glint in his eye in that movie, but he also can play this, you know, unhinged, you know, sociopath, right? Like right. it but it's like here's the guy who is you know, the glint in his eye, bright-eyed has that smirk and can do all that and you're right compared to the next movie it's a really impressive set of movies to show his range of what he's able to do i i like gibson this movie i really like mark lee in this movie as archie yeah i don't really good i don't i don't i looked him up and he doesn't have a lot to his credit and but at the same time like this is um it's it's a good performance he ended up going to theater, it looked like, much more uh, throughout the end of his career. But yeah, this is a good performance. Overall, I really like this movie. I didn't realize some of the historical relevancy until you just started talking about it, and I just started doing like a little bit of Googling about Anzac Day and stuff like that and how how much this means to the country. So that puts it in a slightly different context to me. But yeah, I think it's a really good story, and ultimately it's not a war movie to me. It's a story about 
these two young guys and the journey they take getting to that place of you know of war and it's more about the those two people as opposed to it is to me about a war movie so yeah, agreed again i think that i think that <laughs> pardon me the burgeoning friendship between the two characters i think is meant to be sort of an analogy to the growing national pride of the australians and the mm-hmm. breaking away from the tradition of the british rule so yeah yeah i i saw where gibson mentioned about how this movie is about the birth of a nation so i that 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 makes more sense to me now again like i don't know anything about australian history so that's going to be your job from now on right yeah i'm really trying to watch as many australian movies as i can and sort of get a a better feel for not only like cinematically that the you know but culturally and spiritually and i think it's interesting because even though there's a lot of difference in the way that movies are filmed and you know they run the gamut of all the different genres there's a really strong similarity to every australian movie that you can kind of feel this almost intangible through line every time you watch one and i'm just really curious to keep watching them and see if i can sort of figure that figure that shit out in some ways yeah i'd be interested because i'm i'm fascinated by some aspects of australian film even if i tend not to have as much of an appreciation for it at times i'm really fascinated by some of it yeah i watched um two killer killer alligator movies this week from australia one (laughs) called the dark age which is a hilarious b movie that stars um gulpalil yeah gulpalil and uh actually the guy that's the main antagonist in wolf creek mm-hmm. and then on the other end of that man's like life i watched a movie called rogue from 2006 which is about a killer alligator where he plays almost a complete opposite type of character so hmm. interesting that movie was really good but anyway what was that called rogue rogue okay um all right so the number one movie on your list that you already uh, sorry it's not number one the last movie we're going to discuss is man max 2 the road warrior it's directed by george miller stars mel gibson bruce spence emil minty and vernon wells it has a 94 percent from critics and 86 percent from audiences um you want to tell us well we talked about thunderdome before right but we never talked about the first man max so you want to tell us a little bit just a little bit about Mad Max to the Road Warrior and then yeah, I, I honestly can't believe that we've never no we've talked about Fury Road though too because that was best sequel we we did yeah we've talked about all of them but the original and I um have to say I am grateful because I don't want to have that argument with you have we talked about Road Warrior before no okay so this will be the time that this we is the first this Warrior. is the time we talk about Road Warrior yeah <laughs> okay that makes more sense um I think pretty much everyone is familiar with the Mad Max series, George Miller's post-apocalyptic uh, tetralogy, tetralogy, what's four? Quadrilogy? Anyway, that'll soon be followed up with the Furiosa uh, side movie. This movie follows Max Rocket, Rocketansky um, in some indeterminable amount of time after the events of the first Uh, mad max movie and possibly not even in the same real timeline 
Uh, there's some haziness to the way that Miller kind of constructs his world where it really feels like you're just every one of those movies is you hearing someone telling a tale of their experience with Mac Rakotansky. So he's more of a mythological figure than he is an actual character. And so there isn't necessarily a character arc for that, for him so much as he's just kind of the central figure in a bunch of different scenarios. So anyway, uh, he's traveling across the outback. His car gets wrecked. Uh, he ends up sort of kidnapping this guy who has a gyrocopter. Um, and they make their way into this makeshift town that's uh, where they have the ability to refine oil and gasoline, which is a high commodity in the wasteland where everyone's riding around in crazy souped up cars. Along the way, he runs afoul of a gang of, I don't know what you call them, biker punks or whatever, uh, led by a bandit king, I guess, called the Humongous, who's a giant half-naked man, or mostly naked man, wearing a hockey mask. Uh, the Humongous has basically an army of killers and lunatics that are at his beck and call, and they want to take, they basically want to take over the city oil town or whatever, where they can refine, they, they can basically have an unlimited supply of gasoline, uh, so Max initially gets captured by these people, works out a deal where he'll bring back a tractor trailer or a tractor that they can haul their gas in, uh, but <clears throat> ends up, and so he leaves and then gets beaten and his dog is killed, which is one of the more horrific parts of the movie. His car is blown up. He makes his way back and then agrees to drive the tanker for him ends up being as a distraction so they can get away in their buses and move to another place where they are not going to be harassed by the humongous anymore. Uh, and Max really sacrifices his own freedom in a lot of ways because he's just left wandering at that point to sort of help these people get away and sort of go live a better life. So let me say this about all these movies. And this is how... Mad Max, the original movie, is dissimilar from the rest of the the series. I think that all three of these movies are telling the same story from a different perspective and are being done so in a way where it's been so many generations removed from Max Rockentansky's actual existence that the stories have mutated to seem completely dissimilar when they're actually the same tale, which is a man who is more capable than most other people sacrificing himself for the greater good of the innocent. And if you look at road warrior beyond Thunderdome and fury road, they're basically the same exact story. All of them, you know, it's him kind of coming in and being crass and self-serving and against his will, but slowly softening and eventually turning around to, help unseat a dictator basically and move these innocent people into a better place, a better land, you know, whether it's the un indetermined distance of road warrior or the oasis of, <clears throat> or the, moving them into Sydney basically and 
beyond Thunderdome or just unseating a Morton Joe and turning the water back on in Fury Road. All of those things is the sacrifice of Mac Rockatansky in order to help out the greater good, basically. Um, and I think that's fascinating. I think it's really amazing that George Miller has, over the course of shit, 40, 40 plus years, been able to tell this story and craft this universe uncompromisingly, you know, with his own very distinct vision attached to every single one of these movies. And I think maybe it's one of the reasons why you like Mad Max the least, honestly, because Mad Max at its heart is just a revenge movie in a lot of ways. I mean, it really is just a very bare bones family in peril, you know, man coming, basically coming back from the dead to wreak vengeance on the people that took away his family set against a vaguely post-apocalyptic setting and really just kind of a dystopian setting. Whereas increasingly as you get through Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome and Fury Road, it's more and more dystopian and less and less likely that there's any hope for the world. We're basically, so the idea of this universe is that there's been a, a crisis where the oceans are drying up around Australia and basically turning everything into a desert um, because of a climate crisis, which was also really forward thinking. If you think about it back in 77 or whenever Mad Max is from that, like that's Miller's initial thought is the destruction of the environment and really kind of prescient in a lot of ways. If you look at things, especially if you, when you look at road warrior and um, beyond Thunderdome. So it's a great performance by Gibson in this movie. Some really, iconic and unique visuals especially with the humongous's i can't remember what the name of that guy is the guy with the mohawk that's the humongous's like pet um which again is the thing that's echoed know, that's in, vernon wells right yeah um shit i can't i can't uh wex yeah exactly so, which is yeah. a character pairing that's echoed in blaster master and or blaster master and is a character that's echoed in morton joe and he basically has the same thing. You know, he's got his sons that are on chains that he can let go to these muscle bound men that can go and like, he lets go to like kill. I mean, I think there's a lot of similarities between all three of those movies where I sort of feel like it's the same story. You just told from a different perspective. So let me stop you real quick. Cause I've been wanting to ask this for a few minutes now. When you say that, that you think it's the same story, do you think that is Miller's intention is to in a way that it's almost folklore that he's making a comment on to some degree or do you think that it is a trope to retell what what are you kind of like insinuating when you say that so i think there's a really strong connection to just aboriginal myth in a lot of things you see from australia and i think one of those connections here is this idea of the idea of the dreaming where at different times you can step into a different world and it's slightly changed or the perspective is slightly different and I also think there's a connection almost and you're going to hate this part but to the idea of similar to Arthurian legend how the Green Knight is a different retelling of the King Arthur Grail Cup Mm -hmm. story basically I think that Miller is taking a central idea, which is that there was a 
there's a town that has control over a resource and this man came in and basic and took the tyrants that were hoarding the resource from the people and removed them from the equation so the people could basically free themselves from that dependence on the resource and move on to a better life and i think that the people in their caravan leading out away from the town in you know road warrior are the same people that settled in whatever sydney in the future in thunderdome and are the same people who are living in these stone towers in fury road I mean, right I think so, it's so so just to clarify you see it as almost like the essence of folklore itself which is the telephone game where it's like the story's been retold in different ways where it's been changed and modified based off this fairly simple story and it's been as the world has like you know as, as time has moved on the story's been basically adapted and you know co-opted to maybe more like modern times or something depending on how deep you are into the apocalypse at that point right sure because at any point the communication and the written word is going to have broken down so all you have right. is an oral history sure and that's why you have a narrator for each of these movies and if you look at the narrator of and it's not like an overarching narration where you're constantly having someone telling you what's happening but it's very intermittent and very very sporadically used but you find out at the end of road warrior that the person that's been telling you the story is the feral kid mm -hmm. <clears throat> who doesn't even speak any lines of english during the entire movie so and is also telling you from decades in the future so he's remembering something that happened when he was a child and without even a really good understanding of what was occurring and narrating these events and things that he wouldn't have seen. So he's telling things that someone else has told him. And it also stretches way beyond the bounds of credulity, the idea that how long could Max live? Sure. Like yep. Realistically. No, I, I, I'm fascinated by this, actually, because I, I've never thought of this before because I haven't put that much thought into it. But um, it actually one of my my only grievances with this movie is the very beginning of where max was in the first movie versus where he is now but what you're saying actually puts it in a different context to where it's like i'm actually more interested <laughs> you know? yeah, i mean and i've i've never read anything from george miller saying that that was his intention and i think mm -hmm. that i think for the most part most people take them as three separate movies with the same characters but again i think and they if you look at it like that it kind of lessens the idea that max is a continuous character across him. But if you you look at the way that Max looks in The Road Warrior is completely different than he looks in Thunderdome. For Thunderdome, he's wild and almost he looks like the feral kid in the way that his hairstyle is done. And then obviously in Fury Road, because Mel Gibson's an old man at that point, it's a completely different actor. So he looks different, but it's the same mannerisms, the same ideology. There's the same idea that there's this group or collective of bad guys that are trying to keep people down mm -hmm. i mean personally i think the fury road does it the best 
just in terms of building that of building a story creating a narrative while never stopping the action once to like walk you back and try and over explain things and i think the thunderdome does it the worst where it's the most over explanation um and maybe road warrior is kind of the the perfect middle ground between those two mm-hmm. but um, I really like the idea of it being just like oral history and, you know, the spoken word with the, with the everything marked, everything membered where, you know, it's these people like telling these stories over and over and it changing and mutating over time, but where the central character is still the same man. <coughs> so I don't know. That's just the way I look at it. It makes me really enjoy those movies. So. Yeah, that's very, very intriguing. I don't have any whatever i like this movie it's like you said it's it's i think it's a well-paced action movie this is like the real max to me like the the first time that like the first movie isn't the real max to me like this is where like and maybe it's because i saw this one first right so this is like my max or something just like everybody has a doctor you know this is my max but uh this is my max and like i remember when i first watched this probably in like 1987 or 88 like where i was at when i watched it and who i watched it with and like it's always like stuck out of my mind as one of my favorite action movies probably of the 80s and i just we've talked about thunderdome i just see it as like i like the first part of it the second part with the lost boys type shit like i'm not as into but We've also kind of discussed that tonight a little bit already. Maybe why I'm not into that as much. Um, <clears throat> so here's another point to my. This is another reason why I think that what I like, why I think the way I think about it. The people telling the story of Beyond Thunderdome are the kids that are living in that oasis. Mm. So how do they know anything that happens up to the point where Max gets right. there? You know what I mean. So again, I think there's a lot of things where it's yeah almost an unreliable narrator that's sort of telling you this learned oral history um, that he's gotten, they've gotten from the ancestors, you know, their parents, whatever the past, maybe sometimes their own experience in the case of like the road warrior where he's telling that story. But ultimately I think the truth of who Max is, is Mad Max, which is a guy who, lost his family because of these lunatics that he had provoked as a police officer. I mean, it's his fault that all that stuff happens in that first movie because he's the one that, you know, basically causes the shit with the Knight Rider and that gets um, Toe Cutter involved and gets his whole group involved and, you know, kind of drives the, whatever, the moment to its crisis, so to speak. But then he's romanticized by these people that have been helped by him or have seen him. And again, I think, so if you look in Fury Road, and not to drag this out for too long, Fury Road has Oil Town, or whatever they call it, which, in terms of its construction and the way that it's used visually, is very, very similar to the city where he goes in um, Mad Max 2. So again, like, is that the same place with a different perspective? Or, I don't know. So... But I think they're brilliant movies. I'm so glad that we're going to get a Furiosa movie because I think that uh, Charlize Theron was amazing in Fury Road. And I love the way that Miller has kind of 
continue to expand his visual aesthetic for that universe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's amazing that over the course of these movies, they've built all of these vehicles where these are no, there's no, it's no digital effects. It's all practical effects for the most part when you're seeing these things in action <clears throat> and just how amazing those action set pieces are. I mean, I think George Miller might be just like speaking off the cuff. I mean, maybe is the most talented action director of all time when it comes to staging set pieces that you probably don't have too many options or opportunities to do multiple times. So. Yeah. So yeah. I love, love, love the rope warrior. Yeah. I really enjoyed watching this movie again. I don't have anything as insightful as what you just said. So I am going to take it to the lowest common denominator and briefly talk about, do you realize how much professional wrestling is influenced by these fucking movies, especially this movie? Yeah. You and I had a really good conversation about this at the bar once. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's probably why I vaguely remember it. Um, Because we, you you were pulling up scenes from this movie and being like, look, that's a leg drop. Look, there's a flying (laughs) elbow. Look, it's like a hurricane Rana. And you were right. I mean, and it was, and it was me, you and Orion were sitting there at the bar, like drunk as shit. <laughs> going through like Mad Max, like finishing moves or whatever. Oh, oh, that's how. That's how. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> but it's like you know, like Dusty Rhodes was in love with these movies, um, particularly the second and third movie, like Thunderdome and and Road Warrior, and that's why we have War Games is because of the case oh, structure. Because two two men enter, one man leave. Yes, like kind of like it's it's the idea of a case structure. It's 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 also why you end up having like the Chamber of Horrors type stuff, which is much more towards the Thunderdome idea, and it's certainly what has created Hell in a Cell nowadays. Um, yeah. Which was was that you have in the also Dusty Roads in the nineties was spin the wheel, make the deal, which was. Uh, short-lived concept for like a year but that was dusty's idea based off of road warriors bust the deal spin the wheel and you had the legion of doom or the road warriors right the road warriors right you have demolition who is also inspired to some degree based off of the road warriors i don't you know about lord humongous right like in uh memphis do you know about that no uh, i don't there's there there's a lord humongous character was under a mask that most famously uh under the mask was Sid Vicious uh at one point like early in his career down in Memphis for Jerry Lawler's promotion there was Mad Maxine in the 80s that was feuding against Wendy Richter and she had like a a green green mohawk and like you know some kind of choker type shit uh, the Master Blasters also in the early 80 or early 90s because of Dusty, which was Kevin Nash and some other dude, like some like mid Carter jobber, uh, where they were called the Master Blasters. Um, I'm trying to think. There was something else more recent that was actually like, oh, Broken Matt Hardy. That's what it was. Matt Hardy said that, um, like, Toe Cutter was where he took some of the inspiration for. Oh, yeah, you can definitely see it. Yeah. Not only with his hairstyle, but with his um, his weird vocal inflections and Mm -hmm. pronunciations. Yeah. 
Uh, so yeah, professional wrestling's had this like continuous, mostly from Dusty on, but this continuous weird influence because of these movies that they've incorporated into into in, into professional wrestling. Which because we both know professional wrestling pretty well, like it's it's fascinating to see like how how those movies that is pretty influence. fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is how how much do you think your language is influenced by T.S. Eliot? Hmm. Uh, enough. Yeah. More than a little. Yeah. Just wondering. Just you know what's funny, you. though? Because I, I, I didn't, I did not expect that answer, that question. <laughs> <clears throat> How much is it influenced by the scripts of the Mad Max movies? I mean, I constantly quote these sure. movies just like subtly in my. I didn't even realize I'd completely forgotten about it. It's a puny plan from this movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When Humongous is like, oh, it's a puny plan. I used to say it's a puny plan like constantly, man. I used to love that phrase. And I'm mean, always obviously make the jokes of everything marked, everything remembered, the no one's in the doings. Um, but he's a raggedy man or. Mm-hmm. No, no, um, you, 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 you do definitely. You're influenced by these movies in terms yeah. of like uh, references you make, and even some of your language choices. Sometimes, I, I was just looking up. I, I just looked up proof rock when you mentioned bringing the moment to its crisis a little mm. while ago, and was just like sitting there and just like glancing through it again. And there are actually, as I'm reading through it, there are words you use much more than I use like those words for the same meaning like words like digress i realized you use the word digress a hell of a lot more than most people i know use the word oh. digress um let's see i can't even think of ever ever having ever said it yeah i i've i because i don't hear people say it and but i've heard you say it hmm. definitely <laughs> deferential is a word that like i don't hear that often that i've heard you use it more than anybody else obtuse um, honestly obtuse. yep yeah yep so yeah i i it's it's interesting and because i haven't read uh the wastelands as much as you like oh that's in, that that's the one where you would see it right right but even yeah. proof rock i'm i'm seeing like certain words that um yeah that 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 you're certainly like i think subconsciously it's creeped in i mean you read things enough times i guess what sure chance do you have oh absolutely i i thinking about it now but it's like i can't measure my own language choices right like necessarily i don't know where unconsciously i'm drawing word choice from a lot of times so i mean I, i guarantee there's stuff from tennyson Sure. I'll have to start paying attention more to the way that you say things, but I would almost bet that you pull from Tennyson more than anything. I bet you I pulled from Tennyson. I bet and you Auden. I pulled from Alden. I bet you, but uh, but but like you said, Road Warrior. I bet you I pull from Deadwood. Yeah, I bet, <laughs> I bet you pull from Lethal Weapon too. <laughs> <laughs> That's a random claim, but um, I stand by. I, I, I don't. <laughs> um. I don't know. I don't know how many 
reference to the Hunsacker, like, you know, like that I can make. Um, like, to no, that. You're, you're gonna have to try now. <laughs> what, like, I have to force it now? No, no, no. It's, it's gotta be natural, baby. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, lethal weapon quotes. Like, I, I don't know. Let me just quickly, I'm just gonna quickly scan through. No, no, no. I don't think I don't think I use. I think that's unfair. It was a joke. I don't. I know. I'm just trying to think of that damn quote. <laughs> the same. The same albino jackrabbit son of a bitch who did Hunsacker. Can you imagine like how long it took Gibson to practice that line? Say that the same albino jackrabbit son of a bitch who did Hunsacker, and say it quickly. The same albino jackrabbit son of a bitch that did Hunsacker. See, so do it again. The same albino jackrabbit son of a bitch that did Hunsacker. Okay, there you go. So, yeah, you're you're more articulate than I am. Oh, what a good joke, though. Like, Murtaugh asked him, are you sure? He's like, yeah, I'm sure I never forget an asshole. <laughs> Old Gary Busey. Old Gary Busey. The guy who did Hunsacker. That's really interesting, though. Like, I I never thought about that as, like, the idea of folklore with those movies. I really hadn't. Like, maybe I'll watch Mad Max again someday and appreciate it, actually. But uh, yeah. I don't like that movie. Uh, when I watched it a few years ago, I didn't like it. I thought it was poorly filmed, and I just was uninterested in watching most of it. But I really like this movie. I love Road Warrior. I like thunderdome and i love fury road like i've actually never watched fury road again oh my god i've from watched the, that since, movie i know you have i've never watched from the theater it was such a it was such a great experience watching the theater that it's like i don't want to watch it on a smaller screen so only. let me say this then if if you're hesitant to watch it again because you don't want to ruin that experience in the theater mm-hmm. watch the chrome edition of it Oh yeah, you have told me about this because it's a completely different experience. And pardon me, even though it's the same movie, it's a completely different experience entirely. And it's super fascinating to watch just how amazing you really see what a great director he is watching that movie in like that beautiful black and white. So definitely, if if you have the chance, I maybe. I think I have it on DVD. If if I do, I'll let you borrow it the next time I see you. But that's that. If you're gonna watch it again and you're gonna watch it on a TV, watch it like that because it's a wholly unique experience. I think. Okay, sounds good. All right. Well, um, yeah, good movies on this list uh, again. Like I'm always like really happy to do these, you know, best of the year lists because. It's always really interesting stuff. 91, 10 years later, radically different list. <laughs> yeah. Radically different, like much more indie based, I think, in 91, which fits with the time period, I think. So, yeah, um, I'm, I'm excited to talk about 91 next week. And then um, we'll be finishing up with 2001 at the end of the month, which also radically different than what we're talking about now so yeah, yeah. it was it was an enjoyable four list to to make and to watch the movies again so yeah absolutely I, I really i really enjoyed doing this podcast i didn't know how i'd feel about it but um it was fun talking about all those movies yeah agreed so. 
All right. So thank you for listening, everybody, and um, have a great week. Yep. Deuces.